This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. I have no idea if President Trump can keep up this pace. It's like it's impossible. Every day. Every day there's like four things. So we'll, we'll do our best to, to, to recap and, uh, and look ahead. We'll talk about the visa and refugee executive order, of course. Uh, the president's talk with the Australian prime minister. There's this weird witch hunt going on with, with companies, in particular tech companies. Remember before November, it was all corporations should never get involved in politics. Corporations aren't people like that. Thing. And now it's how dare you not have an opinion on politics, Uber? And you're like, huh? And the tech companies are out outraging each other. Like Uber's like, we're this much outraged. And Lyft is like, well, we're way more outraged. And then Airbnb's, we're the most outraged. <laughs> like, who cares? It's very weird. And then BuzzFeed is going out, ask, well, IBM, what do you think about this executive order that really has nothing to do with you? Really, really interesting how that flipped all of a sudden. So we'll talk about that. Uh, also, Gorsuch, of course, and finally... I promise we will get to this. I will um, I'll give some advice to the left. I had the opportunity last week to talk to Bill Whittle. I like Bill Whittle a lot. And I asked him, uh, if you were giving advice, if you were a consultant to the media, to universities, to progressives, to the Democratic Party, what would your advice be to stop Donald Trump? And he gave a good answer. We'll review that. And, and I want to go a little bit deeper and, and give my advice on how to beat Donald Trump, now you're thinking, whoa, 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 Slater. Going to give advice. Okay, first of all, when, when uh, during the campaign, I'd give give advice to Hillary Clinton, and people are like, well, you're, why are you helping her? <laughs> Sorry, she's not listening. Uh, the media, CNN's not listening to this. Uh, I, I'm honored that you think I, I have that much influence. But it's important that we know the one way, and there is one way to be Donald Trump. It's important we know what that is. So that we can be aware if they ever figure it out. Are you with me? So if they start doing this thing, well then it's it's going to be a little tougher for Trump to get everything done. So we need to be uh, alert for that. So we'll talk about that coming up. I want to start here though. Uh, Berkeley. I mentioned universities a second ago. The protests at UC Berkeley. Berkeley is totally out of control. California's out of control. Our universities are out of control. And Berkeley is the worst of them all. Berkeley is, is almost too progressive for California. Like it's, it's unbelievable what's going on there. Every single day, all the time, they're having crazy stuff. But the riot at the Milo speech the other day uh, obviously went too far. Uh, I want to chat about that, but I want to start here with a story from Jack London. Might be a nice read uh, this week. It's a short story. It'll take you 10 minutes. 
It's called To Build a Fire. It's free online. Just Google. To Build a Fire, Jack London. You can read it there. If I could could talk to the, the rioters, the students at Berkeley, protesters, and have them all gather around, sit Indian style on the magic carpet and read them a story, I would read them this story right here because there's a lot of important lessons that I think they should pick up. The story is about a man in the Yukon Gold Rush just before 1900, 75 degrees below zero, and it was him and a sled dog. The very short of the story is he, the man, thought he could do it alone. He was prideful against Mother Nature. He thought he could handle it. He was traveling over a frozen river, and, and, and it was frozen thick, but there were some natural springs that weakened the ice. And he's like, that's no big deal. I can avoid him. I know what to look for. So he did. He avoided a bunch of them until he missed one and he fell in the water. Now, he was able to get out, but it was obviously freezing to death. It's 75 below zero. He still thought he was fine, though. No big deal. So he started a fire. Got the fire going. And Jack London tells this beautifully, obviously. But he gets the fire going. The problem is he started it under a tree. And the smoke from the fire melted the snow on the branches above him and all the snow from the tree fell on top of him and extinguished the fire. And, you know, he had to dig himself out. So he tries to start another fire, but this point's getting a little more desperate. He can't pick up the matches when he drops them in the snow. His fingers are so frozen. So it's getting a little more desperate. He still thinks he can do it though. He decides to kill the dog and uses, cut it open, use his carcass to stay warm to the morning. So he does, he grabs the dog, but he realizes he can't kill it. He can barely move. He, he can't move his arms at all. He can't move his legs. And spoiler alert, he dies. But here's the key part. Throughout the whole story, whenever something bad happens, and I left out a bunch, but whenever something bad happens, Jack London always writes about advice from the old timer. He keeps referring back to the old timer. We don't ever meet the old timer. But he keeps writing about the old timer. So this is right after the man avoided one disaster. Uh, he writes, Jack London writes to the man, he remembered the advice of the old timer on Sulphur Creek and smiled. The old timer had been very serious in laying down the law that no man must travel alone in the Klondike after 50 below. Well, here he was. And he had the accident. No big deal. He was alone and he saved himself. Those old timers. Uh, those old timers are rather womanish, he thought. All a man had to do is keep his head. He'd be all right. Any man who was a man could travel alone. So there's the pride, right? He avoided a disaster. Full timer said I couldn't avoid it. Look, I did. Fine. Any man who's a man could travel alone. Later in the story, another bad thing happens. Perhaps the old timer on Sulphur Creek was right. If he had only had a trail mate, he would have been in no danger now. Later in the story, he's closer to death. The old timer on Sulphur Creek was right. A man should travel with a partner. And then right before the man freezes to death, he starts hallucinating, basically. And Jack London writes, he drifted on from this to the vision of the old timer on Sulphur Creek. He could see him quite clearly, warm and comfortable, smoking a pipe. You were right, old hoss. You were right. The man mumbled to the old timer on Sulphur Creek. 
and then he dies. It's the end of the story. A lot of great themes throughout this short story, but here are the two main ones. First, there are laws of nature that you have to respect. There are great truths in this world that you can choose to ignore, but they will smack you in the face before long. And there are truths that you can ignore and get away with it for a while. Like, like the man's fingers didn't freeze off right away. But 75 below zero got him eventually. The truth always wins. And secondly, the importance of taking advice from old timers. From people who have been there before. And this is what I would say to the students at Berkeley. Listen to those with wisdom and experience. I love Proverbs 4. The beginning of wisdom is this. I, and I love that. This is such a great intro. The beginning of wisdom is this. And you're like, oh my gosh, what is it? What's the beginning of wisdom? Get wisdom. At first I was like, well, that's, what is that? What do, you mean? what do you mean the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom? Like, obviously. That's like, what's the beginning of making bread? Make bread. You're like, well, hold on. that doesn't answer anything. So the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. The point is you have to seek it. You have to go get it. You got to want it and you got to go get it. All right, so what does this have to do with Milo and Berkeley? The students there, and at most universities, are like this man in the freezing cold. They think they have all the answers. They think they know better than anyone. They think they don't need wisdom. They think they have all they need. And they don't need to listen to anyone. They have all the answers. Now, maybe this is what 18-year-olds are supposed to think, and that's cool. I get it. But I think the point of college has always been, you take an 18-year-old who's leaving high school. I'm only 32. It was only one that long ago. Like, I get it. You're an 18-year-old. You're leaving high school. You're, you're the king at high school. You're the king. You know more than those stupid freshmen, right? So you're, you know everything. So you take an 18-year-old who thinks he knows everything, and then you send him to college where he gets hit by a freight train. And hopefully the 18-year-old realizes he knows nothing. And all the teachers that, the, you know, they were, you know, I'm smarter than my high school teachers or whatever. You can manipulate your teachers. Then you go talk to professors, right? And they, they give you these books by the great authors that you never read in high school. And you're like, oh my gosh, I know nothing. And over the next four years, the university is supposed to break down the arrogance and then build wisdom from that and then send them off into the real world. That's the point of college. But that's not what goes on anymore. Today, colleges are places where the arrogant know-it-all 18-year-old goes and his views are confirmed. His views are validated. His views are protected. He goes to college and an arrogant 18-year-old and leaves an even more self-assured 22-year-old. Because all that happened those last four years was a bunch of adults taught him everything that reinforced his previously ignorant worldview. So the only question is, when these graduates enter the real world, will the real world coddle them too? Like that, like when, when these kids go off to a real job, will the bosses coddle them like the professors? Or will the real world smack in the face like the 75 below zero temperature of the Yukon Territory did to that man? And will these kids regret not listening to the old timer? Now, I'm not saying the old timer knows everything. It's more just the posture of humility. Arrogance used to be broken down at universities. Students should leave humble. They should leave the four years more humble than when they arrived, realizing that they know way less than they ever thought. They shouldn't leave more arrogant. And every professor, 
Every professor, I don't care what you teach a professor, every professor at Berkeley should be ashamed of the university for having so many students on campus who bask in their ignorance. To the point where we won't even let someone else speak because he's wrong, I'm right, I know it. I can't learn anything from them. No one should be allowed to listen to that. And I'm going to burn the building down. That is incredibly arrogant. And they celebrate it. That's the sad part. one 888 Again, the book or the short story, it's called, it's really short, To Build a Fire by Jack London. Slater right here on Twitter. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. This is Mike Slater. Slater, because I have one more segment on these, uh, these college students in general. Then I want to talk about what happened uh, with the Prime Minister of Australia. We'll talk about Australia's immigration policy. It's crazy. Um, I think I said probably two years ago, the characteristic that I look for most in a president, or I was looking for most, is curiosity. I love that characteristic in people because if you're curious and you question everything, uh, it means you want to know the truth. So I don't know about Trump and his curiosity. I haven't spent enough time with him. I always thought Trump was arrogant. But that's not precise enough because arrogant people don't surround themselves with exceptional people. An arrogant person would not hire Rex Tillerson or Mad Dog Mattis or General Kelly. They just it wouldn't. Uh, arrogant people only surround themselves with yes men and people below them, like not as smart as them, not as talented. Um, these people are exceptional. So arrogant people don't do that. So Trump's not arrogant. He's braggadocious. He's blowhard and some other adjective, but not arrogant. But anyway, I, I don't know what, I don't know how curious he is. Now, something I've heard over and over about Trump, and, and, I, and I did witness this firsthand uh, once, is he's always asking for people's opinions. He's always asking what you think. You know, what do you think of this? What do you think I should do? What do you think of that? And, and he listens he listens intently. Now, he makes up his own mind, of course, but he, but he listens. He asked me, uh, this was last December. Uh, he goes, Slater, what, what do you think I should do? This was about skipping the debate, right? Remember, he kind of threw out there that he's going to skip the debate, and then he decided he's not. And it was, right, it was a couple of days before, and he goes, what do, you, what do you think I should do, Slater? And I said to myself, I was like, let's, let's do this. I said, I think you should skip it. I said, it's the ultimate power move, Mr. Trump. You'll get way more press, way more attention by skipping it than if you go. Skip it. He didn't skip that one, but he skipped the next one. I take credit. Point is, he was asking my opinion. Like, why? Why is he asking my opinion? Who am I? Nothing. No one. Like, but he listened. 
in the art of the deal, he talks about how they went to go pick out marble for the lobby of one of his hotels and they're at the quarry or whatever. And he was deciding between three colors and he asked everyone who was with him. There was a reporter that was with him, uh, who followed him that day. He asked his you know, assistants. He asked the people who weren't there. He asked the janitor who was clearing up, clearing, like cleaning up nearby, right? The janitor's having to be walking by. And Mr. Trump goes, uh, excuse me, sir. What, 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 like, what? And then they all gave their advice. And then he made his choice. So I don't know. That's, that's something that a curious person would do, I think. Hmm. I don't know. Either way, it's essential. To be curious. That's why Jesus said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Kids are curious. They're asking why about everything. What is this? Why does it do that? Why does it do that? Who does this? Blah, blah, blah. All the nonstop. They're so curious about the world. Jim Gaffigan has a joke um, where he, he says uh, he realizes how little he knows about things because he, he goes, you know, recently my son pointed to an antenna and he said, look, daddy, a stick. And I said, actually, son, that's an antenna. He goes, what's an antenna? Uh, it's a stick. <laughs> like he, he didn't know how to explain an antenna because we, we've all lost our curiosity about the world around us. Walt Disney said that the special secret can be summarized in the four C's. Curiosity, confidence, courage, consistency. And I think he went on and said the most important one's confidence, but I think the most important one's curiosity. Because if you're curious, you won't stop at anything until you find the truth. And if you're curious, then you have perseverance because you won't stop at anything until you find the truth. So anyway, to bring it back to what's going on in Berkeley, they're not curious. Those kids aren't curious about anything. Like it is the, it is the height of arrogance, the opposite of curiosity to say someone's coming to speak at my school. Well, listen, it's bad enough maybe to say, nah, I don't want to go. And that's fine. You can't go to everything, right? But you're like, ah, I don't want to go. I disagree with him. I mean, that, that's pretty arrogant. If you got nothing to do that night, you're at university, that's the point, right? To go to things like this, you should say, yeah, yeah, I'll go. See what he has to say. But it's even worse to not let anyone else go, to have the, even the concept of shutting it down. Like, that, that's so, that's crazy to me. Absolutely crazy. But you are so arrogant to think that you can't learn something by listening to someone who you probably disagree with. Even, even if you go, okay, so if, you, if, if these people went to Milo and Milo said 100 things, you're telling me you're not going to find one thing you agree with them on? One thing that you can be like, you know, that's a really good point. Or here's the other thing. And even if this happens, this is great. You go to the speech. So let's say a super feminist goes to the speech. And Milo goes up there and talks about how feminists are awful or whatever. At the very least, the feminist can go, hmm, okay, that's what he thinks feminism is. Interesting. Okay. Uh, all right. I'm going to use that to strengthen. He's wrong, but I'm going to use that to strengthen my argument about what feminism really is. So at the very least, you can walk away with, with more information that can help you make your argument. Right? So, so it's just so, you're so arrogant to say, there's nothing I can learn from you and, and no, one, any, no one can learn anything from you. And I'm going to make sure you, you're not even allowed to speak. But that's our universities today. How odd. That is nothing, nothing to be proud of.
One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I like. I, I can't. Like, people are paying like big, big money for this. <laughs> I, I really hope my my son's four months. I really hope uh, in eighteen years the whole university system just completely implodes because I, I I'm not paying for this. It's gonna be like a hundred grand by the time Jack is eighteen, but a uh, hundred grand a year. Uh, but this this is no good. There's there's no point in in this. If this is how it's going to be. one 93 Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to come back talk about Australia. Funny little trick Australia played on America the other day. Australia has prison refugee camps, but they made Trump out to be the bad guy. About re- Very, very fascinating how they pulled that off. We'll talk about that coming up next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. So we're talking about the uh, the riots at Berkeley the other day. Uh, Andrew from Indiana called in a couple months ago, and we had a conversation about allowing guns on college campuses. You may remember that conversation. And Andrew from Indiana is back. What's going on, Andrew? Hey, what's up? Uh, I mean, there were a few things that you you know misspoke about me, but I, I'm not going to go into that because I mean I think you're a really nice guy, and I was kind of disappointed to see that you kind of railed on me after the call after we had a i think a reasonable discussion because you're a nice guy and i've seen you enough times on fox news or hosting dr drew you're you know you're very respectful and you know to say that i haven't shot a gun before that was completely incorrect i've been to a range my grandpa served in world war ii I, I'm, I'm i'm fully aware and i just want to know your stance now if you think uh, you know, if you're, you probably haven't swayed one bit on your view on guns on campus. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, let me just ask you why, why would your, why does what happened in Berkeley, why would it change anything? I don't get it. Well, you kind of, you're kind of contradicting yourself when you say, uh, college kids, when they come out at eight and 18, they're ignorant and they can't really stand on their on two feet and they're completely unaware of everything that's going on and you want guns in that atmosphere i said they're arrogant like mm-hmm. i meant more like arrogant about history and political views and things like that you said they're unaware you said they're completely unaware of what's going on uh, and I didn't they don't say know that. the issues and yeah issues issues but i don't think an 18 year old is uh ignorant enough to shoot someone in the face just because they happen to have a gun that's a different thing. I, I, I'm, the arrogance I'm speaking of is listening to your elders. That was the Jack London story that I that I read earlier, right? Um, and and just like American history and things like that. Not, I think all 18 year olds know you shouldn't shoot someone. You know, you quote you quoted your comedian, and I wanted to quote the comedian Jim Jeffries when <laughs> they took away all the guns uh, in Australia after their shooting. Uh, you know, they're one of the most nonviolent countries. In the world, after they had their shooting, they said, we're just going to take the guns away. And how'd that end up happening? Yeah, how did that end up happening? You tell me. Uh, they don't have – their murder rate went significantly down after 96. Hmm. 
Yeah, not really. <laughs> it didn't. No, uh, I mean, you can listen to Jim Jeffries tell you his that political point, but that's just not true. All right. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, 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 I, can, I can give you the numbers right now. I mean, it went down a little bit, but it actually went down to – so I, I'm looking at a graph right now. I can look at suicides or homicides. We can do either one. Um, Homic- but, homicides. Okay, so we do homicides because uh, you have gun, gun-related gun suicides is one reason why people say we should get rid of guns as well. But we'll do homicides. The homicide rate today, and it's similar with America. It goes up and down, right? It goes up and down. So you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was relatively low, and then it spiked up a little bit. Um, and then that's in 1996 is when Australia did the gun buyback program. It actually went up a little bit after that. And then, and then it went back down. So it's about where it was in 1980. It's not nothing, right? You create, you have this perception that all the guns were confiscated and now there's no homicide. That's not it. Like that, that's not true. Um, I'd love it if you could tweet over me some, some numbers that you have. Uh, but there, it's a, it's not, there's no crime or no gun crime in Australia because they confiscated guns. That's just not, not the case. Yeah, but I just see with all these liberal, absolute, insane groups, these anti-protesters just going up. You know, if if a Republican was to go to a left to a leftist and you know brandish his gun or you know even show his gun whatsoever, you know, I, I yeah, right that doesn't now, happen. This is what's so funny, Andrew. That doesn't happen. No, like, I, I know, I know, it's in the holster. I I know, I know. You you know you were doing that too. You. And then you said you don't know what a liberal atmosphere is. You know what a liberal atmosphere is. You know that ninety percent of professors are liberal. Uh-huh. They go they go through their undergrad, they get their graduate, they get their doctorate, and then they're back in college. You know this. Okay. Someone act so, like that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah of course. But what does that have to do with guns? Liberal eighteen-year-old people that have absolutely no brains whatsoever. You're very aware of that. Okay, so what does that have to do with guns? What does the liberal atmosphere have to do with guns? Well, no, you said you didn't know what a liberal atmosphere was. You kept asking that time after time after time. Well, okay, I, get, I mean, I get atmosphere? you're saying that college is full of progressives. Okay. Yeah, I get. Okay, I get that. But I don't know the connection between that and guns. That they don't mix well, and you can see the violence. That's going on right now, and I just think guns right now it would be the last thing that I would want. Okay, all right, real quick. So you, you talked about, you know, does what happened in Berkeley, does it affect my opinion whatsoever? There are guns in California. I'm sure people in Berkeley have guns, uh, but why did no one use them at the protest? Like, it's so funny. You, They could have been used, but they weren't. Why not? Why didn't people use guns at the riots the other day? You can't have guns on campus that you. Oh, you Berkeley. think that stopped them? You think that's? Are you allowed to have uh, you know pepper spray on campus? Are you allowed to light things on fire on campus? Are you allowed to rip barricades down on campus? Are you allowed to break windows on campus? Are you allowed to punch people in the face on campus? Are you allowed to rip people out of their car on campus? Are you allowed to beat people unconscious on campus? You're not allowed to do any of those things, and it all happened. So why didn't no one shoot a gun during the riot? You're well aware they're not one of the twelve states that allows guns on campus. No, 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 no. I listen to what I just said. You're not allowed to do a lot of things on campus that these rioters did. Why did none of the rioters shoot a gun? But it's it's about limiting. You know, if it, as far as guns, you you know that's going to kill a more significant amount of people. Yeah. When you when you eliminate the guns, it's going to take a lot more. It's going to take a lot longer time to kill someone with a baseball bat. People aren't going to be walking around with a baseball bat 
or a hatchet knife. No, but okay, let me ask the question again. Why did no one fire a gun at the Berkeley riots the other day? Because the laws are extremely strict in California. Okay. Wait, wait, what, what laws? What laws? The laws that say what? Make it difficult to get the a gun? Laws, the laws, Nancy Pelosi and everything. No, that she's no, no. I have a gun. I'm in, I'm in my house right now. I have a gun 10 feet from me. Okay? So it's not that hard. It's kind of hard, but it's not yeah, that hard. You're one of the rare... You're no, I'm not. No, I'm not. There's tons of guns Just in California. Like There's plenty of guns. No, answer this question. This, Andrew, this is so. This is essential to your entire opening question. Your entire opening question is: Did what happened in Berkeley change my opinion on guns on campus? I'm asking you: Why did no one fire a gun during the riots in Berkeley? All right, I'll leave your audience to the side. I appreciate. <laughs> okay, Andrew. Thank you. You need you need to okay. Just write me, tweet me whenever you get a second, whenever you want to answer that question, because that's a that's an essential question to your question. Okay, I just want to be very clear. Everyone is is with me with everyone here. I think you asked, did what happened in Berkeley change my opinion on should guns be allowed on campus? So I no, and I ask back to you, why did no one fire a gun during the Berkeley riots the other day? I will tell you why. There's a permanency to a gun. I don't think I don't know what the rule is with pepper spray on campus at Berkeley. To be honest, I don't know what the rules. But someone used it, and and fired it the pepper spray right in the face of a female student. She was doing an interview, and some guy walks up to her and sprays her right in the face with pepper spray. I am certain that if guns were allowed on campus, or even if that guy had a gun, that rioter would not have shot the woman in the face. There's a permanency to it, right? That, 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 to a gun that is not with pepper spray. And there are laws that would f put that guy away for a long, long time if you shoot a woman in the face. So it's not the gun. What I'm getting to is it's not the gun. It's whatever is inside your, that person's heart that they would shoot a gun at someone. That's the problem. That's the root of the problem. And this is when we go back, we can go back to Chicago if you want to and all these dangerous cities. The gun's not the problem. It's what would cause a person to point and fire a gun at another human being. That's the root of it. That's what we got to get to. I'm reading a biography about uh, Charles Lindbergh. And when he was a little kid, his dad gave him a gun at seven. <laughs> seven years old. Andrew, I'm pretty sure you're not going to give your seven-year-old a gun, right? Um, but why, was he, why, why did he trust his kid with a Because he knew Charles Lindbergh, seven years old, wasn't going to go up to someone and shoot him in the face. Okay, you, tra you, tra you train, you raise kids to make sure they realize that you, if there's a permanency to a gun and you could really hurt someone if you do it, you could kill them. Okay, so it's, it's, the, it's the person, not the gun itself. That is why no one shot a gun at the Berkeley riots the other day. I, I just think it's odd, Andrew. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to change your perception on this, but you have this perception that if someone owns a gun, then they're just going to kill people all the time. So we got to make sure no one has any guns because then, because if we have guns, I mean, everyone's going to kill everyone all the time. I don't know why you, you think that. Hmm. I don't know. People who carry guns are not reckless, trigger-happy psychos. And the only thing that's stopping reckless, trigger-happy psychos is banning guns or making it difficult to own them. No, no, there's a lot more preventing me and other people from shooting at people. I don't know why you think anyone who has a gun is, is just going to go around firing it off all the time. I don't know where that comes from.
1-800-988-933-93 if you want to uh, rebuttal to Andrew. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, we'll come back. Uh, we'll take your call, and we'll talk about Australia next as well. Mike Slater Show, AM, uh, Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Let's talk about uh, Australia here for just a few minutes. So it was, I forget what night it was, Wednesday night, maybe, maybe Thursday night, I forget. Uh, and I read a Washington Post article, it was on the front of Drudge, and it was, uh, you know, uh, Trump threatens to invade Mexico. <laughs> so I linked to Washington Post, I read the article, I was like, what? Woke up the next morning, and the president of Mexico said, no, 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 no. Went back to the Washington Post article, and they took that part out of the article. The conversation went something like, or the original report was, uh, Trump said, uh, "Hey Mexico, if you don't secure your border, then uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna send in our military to secure it, or whatever." And the Washington Post took that as we're gonna invade Mexico, like we're gonna like roll into Mexico City next week, or like, oh, what the heck? In the same article, in the same article, it talked about how Trump. Uh, was super rude to the prime minister of Mexico, excuse me, Australia, and hung up the phone 22 minutes into what was supposed to be an hour-long conversation. Again, the next morning, prime minister of Australia said, no, that's not how it happened at all. Trump tweeted out, do you believe it? The Obama administration agreed to take thousands of illegal immigrants from Australia. Why? I will study this dumb deal. Okay, here here's the deal with this dumb deal. Australia... And, and this is what they were talking about. This is what Trump and the Prime Minister of Australia were talking about. Australia really doesn't accept immigrants at all. This goes back to actually the Vietnam War, but more recently, there was a uh, big controversy a couple of years back because refugees who made it to Australia were housed in refugee camps in Papua New Guinea. Wouldn't even let them in Australia. And the UN got involved and toured these prison camps, basically, and found multiple cases of attempted suicide and and depression in detention-like conditions. Uh, There's a psychiatrist who went there and said the camps are inherently toxic, whatever that means, and akin to torture. And there's a group called Save, Save the Children Australia, and he went there for a couple weeks, and he said that his main focus was just to convince people to stay alive. Like, that's how horrible these conditions are in these Aussie refugee camps in Papua New Guinea. But they won't let anyone in. In 2013, the prime minister, this prime minister, vowed stop the boats. Now, that's pretty much build the wall. <laughs> they, don't, they don't need a wall. It's an island. But, so their version is of, of build a wall, stop the boats. You can imagine that being, stop the boats, stop the, build the wall. Right, same thing. Posters uh, from the prime minister said, no way, you will not make Australia home. Wow. So, a year ago, two years ago, year and a half. The Obama administration said, all right, Australia, we will take 1,200 of the 2,000 refugees that you have in your camps. Now, we don't know what we got in exchange for this. Now, people have tried to think, like, what could we have gotten? Maybe Australia send more troops to Iraq. Maybe they do more patrols in the South China Sea. But there's no, we don't know. 
and we probably got nothing in exchange. And nothing infuriates Trump more than a bad deal. So you can totally see Donald Trump coming into this and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. They have prison-like conditions at their refugee camps, and the guy before me decided to take 60% of those refugees for nothing in return? No, 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 I don't think so. Can't you totally see Trump saying that? So, I mean, should we take Australia's refugees? They're not refugees from Australia. Should we take the refugees from Australia that Australia won't accept? I don't know. Let, let Australia figure that out. Seems to make sense, right? One person uh, at the refugee camp in Papua New Guinea said, this is how tired we are. I can't take it anymore. And he lit himself on fire. That day, five more people committed suicide. And this is what the immigration minister of Australia said in response. If people think that through, through action of self-harm, suicide, or harming a member of their family, that that is going to result in them coming to Australia and staying here permanently, that will not be the outcome. That's pretty ruthless. The Prime Minister of Australia said, we cannot be misty-eyed about this. We have to be very clear and determined in our national purpose. We must have secure borders, and we do and we will, and they will remain so, so as long as I am the Prime Minister of this country. This is why I half-joked a little bit ago that Australia played this hilarious trick on us and on the media, making Trump out to be the bad guy when Australia's got their own issues. Right? Australia's got to figure this out, I say. Why is, it, why is it our problem? Because Australia refuses to take their refugees. Uh, maybe, maybe if there's something that we take in return, then maybe we can have that conversation. But that's all Trump was saying. And it's not like the Prime Minister of Australia is some great humanitarian. It's probably more hardline than, than Trump is. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. How are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, I wanted to, I got one more segment here about uh, college kids, and then we'll move on from this. But actually, the real reason I want to share this editorial isn't so much to, well, I really just want to build up to this book that uh, I came across, written in 1899, called Royal Manhood, and I think it's really important. So let, let's build up to that first with a editorial written by a student at the University of Pennsylvania. This is an Ivy League school in Philadelphia. Uh, it's not Penn State. Penn State and UPenn are are different. Um, so this is an Ivy League sophomore. He said, last semester was honestly the worst semester I've had at Penn so far. And all because of one thing. The white professors. It appears that the term privilege does not apply to them, nor do they care to learn what it is. Imagine being a black student on Penn's campus with even one of these types of professors. I had three. And each one of those professors either did not care to learn about their white privilege or lied to me and said they did. All right, I want to be clear here. Ivy League school, 
uh, in Philly, right next to Drexel, which is a, a fine school, and also right next to Temple, which is in the ghetto. I dare this black student to go to the edge of Temple's campus and knock on a random person's door and explain to them how oppressed you are as a student at the University of Pennsylvania. Go ahead. I dare you. I dare you. Knock on the door of someone just, just in the inner city of Philadelphia. Tell them how difficult your life is. Amazing. Quote, understanding their privilege to them is very different. See, this is so funny. That's my point. He doesn't understand his privilege. Why, gosh, that's so funny. Isn't that a perfect example of, uh, you know, criticizing the speck in someone else's eye, you got a plank in yours kind of thing, right? Like you're just critical of how do they not understand their privilege and you don't understand yours. How interesting. They think that by not saying racist comments in class, they're doing good. Not knowing that the half-hearted attempt, this, this sentence makes no sense, but I'll read it as it's written. Not knowing that that half-hearted attempt further contributes to the oppression that I experience in my predominantly white classrooms. So just being in a predominantly, so you're not even the only black person, predominantly white classroom is oppressive. Oppressive, it's oppressive. Oppressive, not just uncomfortable, it's oppressive. There were countless times that his lack of acknowledgement of his privilege led to some of the trauma that I experienced in class. <clears throat> He would show images of slaves on plantations, which really happened, and even allow students to say ignorant comments in class. I'd love an example. I'm pretty sure if he submitted this to an English class, the professor would say, like what? I remember having an intense conversation after class. I basically told him that what he was doing was traumatic to me. And as someone who has experienced a lot of racial trauma in his life, I would not allow him to continue. <laughs> That's the arrogance I was speaking of earlier, Andrew. Uh, stuff like that. I would not allow him to continue. The professor. <laughs> I, the student, will not allow him to continue. All right, one more, one more line here. It even led me to mentally breaking down in the classroom. How? We, we've, we've mentioned this many, many times. In all of history, the goal was to prove to people how strong you are, how much you can overcome. You can overcome any obstacle. That's put in front of you. Look at, look at how difficult my life was, but look at me now. And that is what you cashed in on, right? The ability to overcome. Today, with the currency of victimhood, you cash in by, by proclaiming to people how pathetically weak you are. Here's this guy saying, I, I, it led me to mentally breaking down in the classroom. Like, that is nothing to be proud of. And while trying to console me, he said, there's no way I could acquire the wisdom that you possess. What? That was exactly what I needed to hear. I think he thought that that was a compliment. I, I have no idea what's going on there. I stopped going to his class for a month with different emotions going through my head from not only this class, but from the Trump election. I did not want to step foot into another white space until I made sure that my mental health was restored. The truth is you as a single person cannot make up for the horrific things that white people have done to us throughout human history. But that does not mean that you do not have the power to stop yourself from oppressing the students that you teach every day. Listen, I have, uh, I have one word for, to, in, in response to this person's editorial. Just one word. Outstanding. Well, that is one of the best satires I've ever read on that. Like that, that is, you got it. That is 
wonderfully written. Uh, that was that funny or die or something like that. Crap. Who wrote that? Who wrote that? Song? The onion. Is that an onion? It's got, I'm sorry. What? You say that you, th- you think that's, that you say that's not satire. No, it's gotta be. It's gotta be. I, I, I find it hard to believe someone could be so pathetic. And I don't mean to be rude. I mean that like in the actual true definition of that word. Let me make a, a physical analogy because um, I know people have easier time understanding physical strength. Right? I asked you to pass me the salt shaker. And you said, I can't lift it. It's too heavy. What? I can't lift it. And how dare you ask me to lift it? And then you go around, and you celebrate how weak you are. You you brag to people about how you can't lift a salt shaker. The salt shaker is too heavy for you. And then you go and you tell everyone you know, and you, and you go, you pass by construction sites, and and you you talk to a lumberjack and and uh, and an MMA fighter, and and a fireman, and and you say, look at how delicate and frail. And pathetic I am. Praise me because I am the weakest coward to ever walk the face of the earth. Like you would think that that is odd behavior. But that's what this guy is emotionally. And I, I almost feel bad critiquing him because I think he probably has like serious emotional issues. So I, I'm almost going to kind of like take a step back here because he, he may have problems. But this isn't much worse than all the buttercups and snowflakes who protested and rioted at Berkeley the other day, is it? And I'm, 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 I mean this genuinely. Have these kids ever encountered any stories of bravery, strength, and, and courage in their lives? Like, have they ever read, read, <laughs> have they ever read anything about overcoming challenges and difficulties and people in history who have done this? Have they ever read any stories about people who, uh, who quickly learned that life isn't fair? but overcame anyway no like no no understanding of what bravery and courage and strength really look like i think that i think that might be the case i think they haven't otherwise they wouldn't be bragging about cowardice would they what a funny what a funny culture one so this is what I really wanted to read. James Isaac Vance. I put this quote on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. He was a Presbyterian minister in 1899. This is about the time in America when there was this thing called um, uh, masculine Christianity. Kind of this movement to counter to the feminization of Christianity, that Jesus was a lamb and weak and soft and turned the other, like that kind of and instead, oh, you know, Jesus uh, fashioned a whip and overturned tables in the temple too, right? Like, like, like So there's masculine Christianity uh, movement. So he wrote this book called uh, Royal Manhood, 1899. It's so good, but, and I'll read more coming up next because he, he breaks down three things that make up a, a strong person, three attributes of a strong person that I would recommend to, uh, to this student. And all of us. But I just want to start here. Because this this ties in perfect to this person and to all the Berkeley riders. Where in all the sweep of freaks and failures and feeble sentiments and senseless blattery 
can there be found an object to excite deeper disgust than one of these thin, vapid, affected, driveling little doodles dressed up in men's clothes, but without a thimble full of brains in his head or an ounce of manhood in his anatomy? How good is that? Like? So if you take mean, all the, the just all the, the, the freaks and failures, just like the worst of humanity. Is there anything worse than a thin, vapid little doodle dressed up in men, dressed up, you're dressed up in men's clothes, but you, you don't have a thimble full of brains in your head or an ounce of manhood in your anatomy. He is worse than weak. He is a weak let. What can he do? He can squeak with his little voice, strut with his unathletic members, and gabble deluded twaddle. Oh, that's so good. Gabble deluded twaddle. I think that's what the, that's what this UPenn student just did. He just gabbled deluded twaddle. Because that's all you can do when you're not strong. All right, so what are three attributes of a strong person according to this reverend we'll talk about those next and then i'm going to run downstairs real quick and i'm going to pick up my uh the biography of uh, charles Lindbergh that i'm reading i'm going to hope i can open up right to the page that i'm thinking of about his father uh talking about how he wants to raise his son and the obstacles the challenges the difficulties that charles Lindbergh grew up with as all great people in history did. one 933 uh And uh, it's Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later. That's funny. No, no, we don't want to do both. <laughs> um, all right, so this uh, this book, Royal Manhood, 1899, you're going to hear me uh, quoted a lot over the next couple weeks and months. J- oh, by the way, I couldn't find my Lindbergh book. Sorry. Must be on the car. Apologies. Uh, James Isaac Vance was the reverend who wrote it, pastor. So the question is, what is strength? First, it is the absence of excuse making. Quote, if I had that fellow's chance, if my circumstances were different, mm, if I had more money, out upon all such unmanly whimpering, the music of strength is not set in the key of wines. We must accept life as it is and make the best of it. Whenever a speaker begins with an apology, you may know his audience is to feed on chaff. Strength strikes the word excuse from its vocabulary. No excuse making. Strength is industry. Hard work is only another name for genius. And weakness is often only another name for laziness. A lazy man is a butt of ridicule for all of creation. The men who have achieved uh, success in medicine, law, literature, art, trade, have all been tireless workers. Strength is self-reliance. He goes on, he tells the story of Henry Ward Beecher. And uh, when he was a boy, now this is written, Henry Ward Beecher wrote this, it was written a long time ago, so I'll try to translate it in modern language as I'm I'm reading here. 
Uh, he tells the story. He goes, I was sent to the, ba- uh, to the blackboard, and I went uncertain, full of whimpering. That lesson must be learned, said my teacher with terrible intensity. I want that problem. I don't want any reason why you haven't got it, he would say. Well, I studied for two hours. Okay, that's nothing to me. I want the lesson. You need not study it at all, or you need study it 10 hours. Just do it yourself. I want the lesson. It was tough for a greened boy, for a green boy, a young man, but it seasoned me. In less than a month, I had the most intense sense of intellectual independence and courage to defend my recitations. One day, his cold, calm voice fell upon me in the midst of a demonstration. So he was up there. He was uh, reciting. I don't know what the question was, right? So let's say, let's say it's recite the uh, preamble to the Constitution. We the people, right? So go up there, recite the preamble. In the midst of it, in the middle of it, no. I hesitated and then went back to the beginning. And on reaching that same point again, no, uttered in a tone of conviction. So he went back to the beginning and did it again. And when he got to the same point, the teacher again said, no. Finally, the teacher said, sit down. Who's next? The next boy stood up and got to the same point that Henry Ward Beecher got to, the exact same part. And the teacher said, no. But the boy went right on, finished. And as he sat down, he was rewarded with very well. Whoa, 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 what? I recited it just as he did, but you said no. And the teacher said, well, why didn't, you, why didn't you say yes and stick to it? It's not enough to know your lesson. You must know that you know it. You have learned nothing until you are sure. If all the world says no, your business is to say yes and prove it. That's the key part. Yes and prove it. One must, and then, uh, so back to the, the book. One must be sure of himself. He must have self-poise. This is not conceit. Conceit is all wind. Self-reliance is alertness and forethought. It is preparation and decision. All right, one more. He says there must be moral as well as physical strength. There must be the courage that stands to its convictions, whether people may think or whatever people may think or say. A young man came to Nashville, a church member, and with a clean moral record behind him. He had unusual advantages for success in a noble profession, so things were going to be good for him. But he began going to the devil for no other reason than he was weak. His companions were the kind that make the public suspicious, and the people who associated with him uh, impure and dishonest. Two years were enough to bring his prospects in life to zero. Now this boy, he will whine about his poor chances, and and he'll whine about the little encouragement given by his friends. But the truth is, he killed his chances with moral cowardice. Strength means moral courage and the ability to stand up against ridicule and popular culture. The Penn student that I shared a second ago is, is weak and lazy, according to this pastor. And I think the Berkeley protesters are cowardly and lack moral courage. We mentioned earlier the proper way to behave. It's not difficult. If you disagree with Milo's speech, you don't go. Or you have the humility uh, to understand that it's important that you do go. You might learn something. Now, here's what I would tell my son, Jack. 
Let's say, all right, it's done. You don't want to go to this thing because you think you disagree with that person. All right. You have to have the humility to go and listen. You have to have the courage to afterwards, that night or the next day, host a counter event. Host your own counter event to it. Then you have to have the intellect to pose counter arguments and a proper rebuttal to what you heard the night before. And then finally, you have to have the wit to beat Milo with charm. But all these things take strength. It all takes discipline. It all takes work. So you got to have the humility to listen. You got to have the courage to host a counter event. You have to have the intellect to follow through and then pose better arguments. And then you got to have the wit to beat it with the charm. But again, that takes strength and discipline and work. I feel the kids today realize that it, and it's true, it is way easier to burn things or whine and complain about how weak you are, which just seems weird to do. I got 45 seconds. The National Prayer Breakfast was the other day, and uh, one of the men who spoke was uh, Rear Admiral Barry Black, uh, Chief of Navy Chaplains. He gave the baccalaureate address at my brother's graduation uh, 13 years ago. And I'll never forget, he gave a speech. I was at the speech, and he said uh, two construction workers were taking a lunch break. And one opened up his lunch bag and said, Oh, not bologna sandwiches again. This is the third time this week I've had bologna sandwiches. I hate bologna sandwiches. And this co-worker said, Well, Bob, why don't you ask your wife to fix you something different? And Bob said, Well, I'm not married. I made these sandwiches myself. And the point is, this, pa- this pastor says, Most of the bologna we find in our lives, we put there ourselves. And any baloney that is in our lives that we didn't put there, overcome it. You can. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. That's Slider Crusaders. Let's uh, let's talk politics here. We haven't really done that yet. Uh, Gorsuch. So um, I want to give you a couple of reasons why Gorsuch will be nominated to the Supreme Court or uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court. No problem. Got to remember first the number one priority of TV news. What is the number one priority of TV news? We've shared this a few times before. You need, you must know this and look at everything you watch on TV news through this lens. The number one priority of TV news is to fill time. That's it. Anything else is happy coincidence. It's only to fill time. So all the talk about filibuster or the nuclear option, it's all just filling time. It's all talk. He will pass through no problem. Just always remember that. Number one priority is to fill time. That's it. So two reasons why he uh, will be confirmed no problemo. First, with the political reason. Um, uh, it's a little in the weeds, but I hope it, uh, I think I'll explain it clearly. So there's 100 people in the Senate, 100 senators. Every two years, so there's a six-year term, each senator's six-year term. Every two years, 33 senators are up for re-election. Except for last year, 34 were. So that way, over six years, the whole thing cycles through. In 2018, so the next election, there are 23 Democrats 
up for re-election. Two independents who are really Democrats, Bernie Sanders and uh, Angus King from Maine. So, so 25 Democrats and eight Republicans up for re-election. Now, check this out. This is the key. The Republicans who are up for re-election are all from super red states. Texas, Arizona, Utah, Wyoming, Nebraska, Mississippi, Tennessee, and I'm missing one. That's Arizona, Nevada. Okay, so They're all super red states. They'll be fine. All of those Republicans are going to win their seats again. The Democrats, the 25 Democrats, have a much tougher time. Ten of them, ten of those Democrats are, run, are Democratic senators who are running in states that Trump won. So you have Democratic senators running in red states. Montana, Florida, North Dakota, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Missouri, West Virginia. I think I'm missing one. I don't know if that was nine or 10, but it's 10. Either way. <laughs> so you have Democratic senators running in those 10 red states that Donald Trump won. So let's just take Pennsylvania, for instance. They have two senators, of course. Uh, Pat Toomey's a Republican. He won this last election. And then you have Democrat Bob Casey Jr. So Bob Casey Jr. is, is going to vote on whether or not to nominate Gorsuch. Now, what was the number one reason why people voted for Donald Trump? Well, so maybe immigration. There could be a couple different reasons. But let me, the number one reason why maybe uh, independents or people who were reluctant to vote for Donald Trump, what was the number one reason that those people voted for Donald Trump? Number one, by far, Supreme Court. Bob Casey Jr. knows that. He knows that more Republicans or more people voted for Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court pick than Democrats. So he has a very strong incentive, this Democrat from Pennsylvania, that has a very strong incentive to nominate or to uh, confirm Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick. Otherwise, he may lose his reelection because you know that the Republican who's running against him is absolutely going to say, hey, all the Trump Republicans, all the Trump voters who voted for Trump because of the Supreme Court pick, your senator voted no. Now, Pennsylvania, that may be a tough time, but the senator from North Dakota who's a Democrat, pff, like, like she will vote for... Trump's Supreme Court pick. My point is, Democrats will not be able to hold on this one. What was the... Was it Rex Tillerson? I think it was Rex Tillerson. Four Democrats voted for Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. So all the Republicans did, voted yes. All the Democrats voted no, except for four. Three of those four were from one of those states I just mentioned. Three of those four were Democrats who are in Trump states and they voted for Rex Tillerson. So if they voted for Rex Tillerson, then you know they're going to vote for the Supreme Court pick because most people didn't vote for Trump because of his secretary of state pick. They voted for Trump because of the Supreme Court pick. So like no problem. He will roll through. Now, no, I shouldn't. The Democrats are going to put on this whole big show, right? Oh, they we're tough. We're tough. The seat was stolen and we're going to, they're going to give him a tough time. But at the end of the day, they're, they're going to vote for him. But it'll be a big old dog and pony show. So that's reason number one, political. Second reason is Gorsuch is unassailable. There's no, you can't make a criticism against him. And he's really not that extreme. He's very conservative, but he's not a wild card. Now, of course, and you're going to hear a lot about this, but when he was confirmed for the 10th uh, Superior, uh, Court of Appeals, Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, unanimous, 
So that means Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton all voted for him when he was nominated to the 10th Circuit. Rachel Maddow the other day of all people said he's a mainstream pick. There's just no, there's nothing bad on him other than you disagree with him. But that's not... I mean, that, that's not a reason to vote against him just because you don't disagree with him. This is... Uh, and I've seen a couple essays like this from people like this. This is Neil Katal. He is a law professor at Georgetown Law. He was a solicitor general under Barack Obama. So he's a liberal. And he wrote an editorial in the New York Times, Why Liberals Should Back Neil Gorsuch. He says, I'm hard-pressed to think of one thing that Barack Obama, excuse me, I'm hard-pressed to think of one thing that President Trump has done right in the last 11 days since his inauguration. Until Tuesday, when he nominated an extraordinary judge and man, Neil Gorsuch, to be a justice on the Supreme Court. And then he says, he says, listen, I, for one, wish it were a Democrat choosing the next justice. But since that is not to be, one basic criterion should be paramount. Is the nominee someone who will stand up for the rule of law and say no to a president or Congress that strays beyond the Constitution and laws? And he says, I have no doubt that if confirmed, Judge Gorsuch would help to restore confidence in the rule of law. Okay, so there's a bunch of progressives, a bunch of liberals uh, who have come out who know him who say, oh, this, so you can't. I mean, it's, he's great. And they all say, you know, listen, he's not the person we would choose because we don't agree with him on every issue. But he's super smart and follows the rule of law, and you really can't do much better with this. So they're all saying, this is as good of a choice as we can get. So that's why Gorsuch will go through no problem. There's no real reason why you can't vote for him. So again, they'll make a big dog and pony show out of it um, to show that the Senate can't be bossed around but uh, they'll be fine. Let me address one quick thing here. Um, the New York Times wrote an editorial about how uh, it's a stolen seat. And you're going to hear that a lot. It's a stolen seat. It should be Barack Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland. Now, you lived through this whole thing, so we don't have to go over it again. But Barack Obama nominated a pretty moderate guy to the court. Merrick Garland is not super far left. And the Republicans said, uh, nope, <laughs> we're going to wait till the next presidential election. And people said, that's unprecedented. The Senate's job is to confirm the president's nominee. Well, not really. The president's job, according to the Constitution, is to nominate someone. And the Senate's job is to advise and consent. But it's not a rubber stamp, obviously. Otherwise, what's the point of having the Senate in the process at all? If, if the Senate is just there to confirm no matter what every time, why? Like, well, what's the point? But here's the important thing. Don't let the left rewrite history here. Let's go in the way back machine about 360 days ago when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland. The Republicans took a major gamble on not confirming him. Okay, Go back a year ago. Who thought that a Republican was going to win the White House one year ago? Not many people. Not many people in this country thought that any Republican had a chance over Hillary Clinton. So the Republicans in the Senate took a big gamble. They could have consented a pretty moderate pick with Merrick Garland. I mean, pretty far on the left, but not crazy. Pretty moderate. Or take a gamble and hope that Hillary doesn't win. Because if Hillary won, you know she would nominate someone way more progressive than Merrick Garland. So the Republicans in the Senate took a gamble, hoping that a Republican won. So, I mean, it's easy to now now see that the Republican won. 
and be like, oh, well, Republican was a shoe in the whole time. No, 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 no. It was a risk. They could have taken Mayor Garland and then prevented Hillary from putting one of her Supreme Court justices up. Are you with me? See what I'm saying? But they said, ooh, okay, we're, we're going to see if a Republican will win. And very few people thought that that was ever going to happen. Don't let the media paint this picture like one year ago. Everyone, oh, obviously Republicans going to win the White House. So, uh, oh, the Republicans stalled waiting for the obvious choice, Donald Trump, to win the president. Like, no, no, that's not how that worked. So they took a gamble. It happened to pay off. And uh, he's the guy now. Stolen seat. By the way, it's not even... If you, if you read an article and they tell you that... Uh, oh, it's un- unprecedented what's going on. Having, you know, someone... Uh, the court not full for uh, for this long. So it's been like, eh, like 360 days since... Uh, 360 days or so with a vacant seat from Scalia. So there have been eight times in history with a seat that has been vacant longer than 360 days. The longest that a seat's been vacant is 841 days, then 781, then 535, then 508, then 504, and then 448, or excuse me, 484, and then 437, and then 391. And now we're at about 360. So... Not a not a huge deal. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I won't come back. Uh, one more thing about Gorsuch. Gorsuch is a perfect pick because he adds diversity to the Supreme Court. Wait, what do you mean? He's a middle aged white guy. Mm-hmm. I'll explain next. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. I wonder if Trump or anyone else uh, in the administration is going to make this argument because it's it's true. Uh, Gorsuch improves the diversity of the Supreme Court. He's a middle-aged white guy. What, do you, what does that mean? Supreme Court case 2015. Um, this was the gay marriage case. Scalia wrote a uh, dissent. By the way, and this is an example of the lazy media. Every time, any any TV news or whatever, whenever there's a confirmation hearing, it's always the senators grilling the nominee, right? So you're gonna you're gonna hear that when Gorsuch goes up and has his hearings, um, does his testimony, all that. They're gonna say uh, CNN. It'll be on the ticker. Uh, senators grilling Gorsuch. They're always grilling, and also a lazy media. Whenever they write about a dissent, whenever they refer to a dissent that a Supreme Court justice wrote. They always say it's a scathing dissent. <laughs> they'll, they'll never just put the word dissent. It always has to be scathing. Anyway, so Scalia in the scathing dissent said there should be no social transformation without representation. And of course, that's a play on no taxation without representation from our uh, from our revolution. So what does he mean? No social transformation without representation. So the no, the social transformation was gay marriage. 
but without representation, what do you mean? He said, this issue, gay marriage is, is too important for nine people with zero diversity to decide on. And you think, well, hold on, zero diversity. I mean, there's a black person on the court. There's a Hispanic lady. What more? How much more diversity do you need to be? No, it's not about that. Look past the skin color. Don't be that shallow. This is what Scalia said. He said, take, for example, this court, which consists of only nine men and women, all of them successful lawyers who studied at Harvard or Yale Law School. By the way, there's nothing that says a Supreme Court justice has to be a lawyer or a judge before this, but all nine of them are lawyers who studied at Harvard or Yale Law School. Of all the law schools in the country, they all went to one of those two. Eight of them grew up in East East Coast states. Only one hails from the vast in-between. Not a single Southwesterner, or even to tell the truth, a genuine Westerner. California does not count, he said. Not a single evangelical Christian, a group that comprises about one quarter of Americans, or even a Protestant of any denomination. This was actually my uh, college admissions essay. One of my, I had to write two. This is one of my essays about how diversity is way more than skin color. And I wonder, I wonder how that would fly if I was writing that today. Ugh, probably not good. Um, but that's what Scalia is talking about here. How can all nine of the Supreme Court justices have went to Harvard or Yale Law School? What the heck? And they're all from, except for Kennedy from California, they're all from Northeast states. No one else from in between. Come on. There's no real diversity in the Supreme Court. So, yes, this middle-aged white guy that Trump picked, he has true diversity. He's from the vast expanse in between Colorado. And he's Protestant. He'll be the only Protestant on the Supreme Court. So he brings two pretty big elements of diversity to the court. And if someone can't see that, then they're stuck on shallow diversity, which is just skin color. Not any other aspect of a person's personality, life, background, history, perspective, nothing. It's all about skin color. That defines you. Now, look past that. Coming up next, my advice. If I were a consultant for the Democratic Party or for uh, CNN, media, what would be my advice to them on how to stop Donald Trump? Now, this isn't for their benefit. It's for yours. Because if you see them doing this, then you know they're on to it. And they're on to him. So we'll talk about what that looks like. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America, the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So for this segment, I want to try something here. Uh, I'm going to come at it from the perspective of a progressive. I'm going to make this uh, disclaimer in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Uh, I'm going to get an email from someone saying, Slater, why are you giving them advice? I love that criticism. I got that criticism when uh, we talked about uh, or when we gave Hillary Clinton advice during the campaign. Uh, I'm honored 
that you think I have that much influence over anything, uh, let alone the entire progressive movement. But I'm not giving this advice for their sake. Uh, I'm giving them advice so that you know what to look for, so that you know if they're not doing this, then they're failing, as they are. And you will be aware if, if they have figured it out. Right? If, if they do this advice that I'm going to give them, then it means they caught on. And if they caught on, I mean, it's going to be a lot harder for, uh, well, at least for Trump to, to get stuff done. So that's why I am coming at it from the, from the perspective of a progressive. The question is very simple. What advice would I give to the Democratic Party? What advice would I give to the media to defeat Trump? Now, technically, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, I'm going to let Andres Rondon answer it. Andres is from Venezuela. Venezuela is a failed state, completely failed state. Chavez is a horrible dictator who led the country, which is floating on oil, into a complete economic and societal collapse. We've shared many stories from Venezuela. Venezuela is the, the, the country where uh, hospitals have no electricity. So they have to pump respirators by hand for babies. Right? So you got baby incubators and respirators. They have to pump them by hand. And babies die every night just because they have no electricity. And they're performing surgery on blood-soaked operating tables because they have no water. It's a total cesspool, the whole country. And it's all caused by a failed government. It doesn't have to be this way. So this Venezuelan says that Donald Trump and Chavez, Hugo Chavez, are both masters of populism. Now, not saying, of course, that Donald Trump is a murderous dictator. That's not the point. We're only comparing their populist appeal. That's the only thing that these two have in common. Their populist appeal, which is undeniable. So what is populism? How does populism work? Pretty simple. First, you find a common wound. Then you blame someone for it. And then you tell a good story about how you're going to fix it. Pretty simple. One, two, three. Common wound. Whatever that is. Jobs moving overseas, for instance. Uh, and then you tell the wounded that you know how they feel. Then you find someone to blame. And then you, you, you cartoon them. Right? You put this group of people into one one group or you put a group groups of people into one big group uh, and they are the enemy. Then you paint yourself as the savior and you got to capture their imaginations, not with policy, but with a good story. And then a little anger and vengeance goes, uh, goes a long way too. And that's how it becomes a movement. So throughout all of human history, this is pretty much how populist movements work. You have a wound, an enemy and a savior. The simplicity of it is why it works. Wound, enemy, savior. So if you're just tuning in, I'm advising progressives here. I'm giving some advice to progressives. I'm advising CNN, the New York Times, the organizers of the Women's March, the rioters at Milo's speech, etc. First piece of advice. And this is the toughest part. You have to realize New York Times. You have to realize CNN. You have to realize people at the Women's March. You are the enemy. In, in, this, in this populist phenomenon that's going on and clearly the populists won right donald trump won on a populist rise that's it so in this populist phenomenon you are the enemy 
in the great divide between city and country where country is winning, Trump, you, kumbaya singing, hand-holding, transgender, bathroom-loving, godless, soulless, globalist, you are the enemy. And the populists have put you in a nice little category to vilify. You must recognize this. You must, you must, you must. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not saying you're evil. I'm not saying you're sinful. I'm just saying to the populists, you are the enemy. Nothing else. Nothing else is the enemy. You are the enemy. So progressives, if you want to stop Trump, you have to realize you are the enemy. Okay, that's step one. Now, once you come to that realization, and it's tough to come to that realization because no one wants to view themselves that way. But if you come to that realization, the second thing is you have to not fuel it. You have to disarm it. Andres tells his experience, and this is why I'm, uh, I'm citing him because he lived through this. He was the enemy. He was the elite. He was an intellectual. He was the rich in, in Venezuela. And he and people like him tried to convince people not to follow this Chavez guy. And they did everything that the progressives are doing today. It starts off with, what are you people nuts? What the heck is wrong with you people? You are, you're all insane. How can you follow this guy? What is wrong with you? Right? That, that whole thing. That just feeds the populism. It feeds into the belief by the populists that you, urban elite intellectuals, you are the problem. So what did the elites in Venezuela do? They tried a coup d'etat. They tried an oil strike. They even had all the opposition parties to, to Chavez withdraw from uh, a congressional election as some sort of weird protest. But then all the Chavez allies just won all the seats. So they just gave Congress to the other party like that. Like, that, like imagine if the Democrats were like, we're not going to run next election. <laughs> so Republicans won every single seat. Like, what? So this is what Andre says. He says, look, we were desperate. And if anything, history has proven that we were right to be desperate. But we, the elite, the intellectuals, we failed. Because, and this is where I'm getting to the point here. We lost sight that a hissy fit is not a strategy. The people on the other side, and crucially independents, will rebel against you, progressives, will rebel against you if you look like you're losing your mind. And worst of all, you will have proved yourself to be the very thing you are claiming to be fighting against, an enemy of democracy. And all the while, you're giving the populist and his followers enough rhetorical fuel to rightly call you a saboteur, an unpatriotic schemer for years to come. So you can't feed it. So you got to realize you're the enemy to the populists. And the populists are winning. So you got to realize you are the enemy. Say it with me, CNN. I am the enemy. Say it with me, New York Times. Everyone in the newsroom, we are the enemy to the populace. Okay, so do you want to stop this? Do you want to stop being the enemy? Do you want to stop being considered the enemy? Do you want to start winning? Do you want to be in charge? Okay, you got to realize, recognize you are the enemy. Then step two, don't fuel it. Disarm it. You have to disarm it. And a hissy fit only fuels it. Trying to tear it down only fuels it. Trying to delegitimize the populist leader, Trump, only fuels the populists. Trying to mock and ridicule the populist only fuels Donald Trump. So you can't 
tear it down. It won't work. You have to disarm it. How do you do that? I'll tell you next. This is it. This is the big thing. This is the key. And I share this again. If I'm not giving this, like Hillary Clinton's not listening. CNN's not listening. You will know that they have figured this out, however, when they do this third thing. Now, I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but you'll know it when you see it. We certainly haven't seen it yet. I'll tell you what it is next. one 888 Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Makes me laugh, Andrew. Thank you. Um, so progressives are panicked. We've seen it. We don't need to explain it. Um, everything Trump does is the end of the world. and Women and children will be hit the hardest. Everything. There's just a, there's not an ounce of reasonable, sober analysis, not a second of critical thinking, not a second of trying to understand what's really happening. It's just, it's been unbelievable. This, in this last week, just like I think on Thursday and Friday, there were like four stories where a reporter tweeted a report out, and then within an hour, they tweeted out, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> like 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 uh, Trump easing sanctions against Russian KGB. An hour later, uh, never mind. That that's not what that's not what that is. What what guys? The Weekly Standard did an article the other day about Democrats becoming the party of outrage. And, and there are some Democrats kind of starting to see the light. They're worried that if everything's an outrage, then nothing Trump does is outrageous. So they're starting to catch on a little bit already. But what do progressives need to do if they ever want to be taken seriously again? So I'm getting this advice from a man who was the enemy in Venezuela against the populist. He was an elite intellectual. So Chavez created a populist movement just like Trump did. A very simple formula if you're just tuning in. It's been done countless times in history. You find a common wound, then you blame the enemy, and you claim to be the savior. It's how it works. Sometimes it ends in Holocaust. Uh, uh, sometimes it's, it's good. And I think Trump will be good, but the populist rise is still the same. All right, so three steps. First, enemies or, or progressives understand you are the enemy. Through the populist movement, you are the enemy. You have to understand that. If you want to stop being the enemy, stop with the hissy fits. And here's the key. This is how you got to solve it. You can't, you can't fuel it. Don't try to, don't try to tear Trump down. You're just going to build him back up. Same thing with the Berkeley protesters and Milo. Milo, the best case scenario when Milo goes to a college campus is the speech gets shut down. The best case scenario. He gets a thousand times more attention when the speech is shut down. A thousand times more. And he doesn't have to give a speech. Like he loves it when, when uh, the speeches get shut down. So that's a perfect example. It's a perfect microcosm of the elite trying to stop the populace from winning. No, don't tear them down. You can't. You have to disarm it. How do you do that? That's the key. Here it is. Number, step number three. You got to come down here for a second. You got to come down here. I, I can't find the right word for it. So let me just quote the man who lived it. 
He said, the problem is tribal. Your challenge, he's saying this to progressives, your challenge is to prove, progressives, that you belong in the same tribe as them. So you, New York Times, you, CNN, you belong in the same tribe as Trump supporters, that you have to prove that you are American in exactly the same way they are. In Venezuela, we fell into the abstraction trap in a bad way. The abstraction trap meaning um, the elite are way over there. They're in their bubble. They don't understand, right? They fell into that trap. We wrote again and again about principles, about the separation of powers, about civil liberties, about the role of the military in politics, about corruption and economic policy. But it took our leaders 10 years to figure out they needed to actually go to the slums and to the countryside. And not for a speech or a rally, but for a game of dominoes or to dance salsa to show that they were Venezuelans too. That they had rhythm and could hit a baseball and could tell a joke that landed. They had to prove that they could break the tribal divide, come down off the billboards and show they were real. In America, that would be like saying, um, Hollywood. Come down off the big screen. Come on down off your, your high horse and show that you're real. And he says, no, this is not populism by other means. It's the only way of establishing your standing. It's deciding not to live in an echo chamber. Only then will your message land. All right, so what does this look like in America? What does Hollywood need to do? Hollywood needs to stop distancing yourself. All right, so I'm a consultant for Hollywood. Stop distancing yourself. Make movies that appeal to everyone. Maybe if you appeared in a Christian movie every once in a while, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Don't lecture us on how MMA is beneath you. Go to an MMA fight. Be one of the guys. <laughs> and, and you know what? Maybe, uh, producers, maybe you make a wholesome TV show. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard that the show This Is Us, or a buddy of mine uh, said This Is Us is a really good wholesome show that... The, the men in the show are great dads, great husbands, really wholesome. And you know what? You don't have to add a gay character because you feel you need to. You just don't. You don't have to do that, just so you know. Which I guess This Is Us did. You don't have to. Media, write stories that appeal to people across the country. Not, not only appeal, but I mean... Write stories that aren't just from the perspective of a New Yorker. Write stories that appeal to people from across the country. And if you're going to write a story about the rest of the country, don't write it for New Yorkers. Write it from the perspective of someone who is from the middle of the country. Remember the article from a couple weeks ago, uh, a New, Yorker, New York Times article about how people in Texas like trucks. And it was like the writer went to Texas on a safari and reported back to the New Yorkers about all the trucks that are in Texas. Like, what, what is that? No, no, so you don't write stories about people in the middle of the country. Stories from the perspective of people in the middle of the country. Big difference. And just progressive people just go, go to the football game. Go hunting. Get excited about the county fair that's coming to town. Watch Duck Dynasty every once in a while. And just stop lecturing everyone about how a founding father owned slaves. Like, what? In short, and I know this is a big buildup, but progressives, if you want to be trusted again, and I don't know if this sounds too simple or too hard. I'm not sure. But if you ever want to be trusted again, you've got to come down off your perch and prove that you are American in exactly the same way that country folk are. That's what you got to do.
because that's the great divide. We've shared it a million times, and it's been the way for thousands of years. We are tribal by our nature. So prove you, and it's on you now. I'm sorry it is that way, but again, that's why step number one is so important. You have to recognize that in this populist movement, you are the enemy. So you got to recognize that, right? So you have to, you, it's on you, sorry, it's on you to prove that you are in the same tribe as everyone else and that you want to be in the same tribe as everyone else. That's the only way that the power of the populist leaders will disintegrate. It's the only way. So keep an eye out for it. If you see progressives doing that, media, all the rest, if you see them doing that, then they're maybe starting to catch on. But the hissy fits and the freaking out, that's a sure sign that they ain't. I got a minute here. I was uh, in Tennessee all week. My uh, my wife's from from a town called Dayton, Tennessee, just outside Chattanooga, small little town. We were visiting her friends, and uh, it was her friend's first time seeing our, our son. Tiny town. Have you ever seen the movie Friday Night Lights or the show? No, we, I've never seen the movie, but we've watched the show Friday Night Lights. It's set in a, in a made-up town called Dillon, Texas. So Dayton, Tennessee, where my wife grew up, is Dillon, Texas, except, as my wife said, we don't have an Applebee's. So it's, it's smaller than Dillon. Anyway, one morning we went to the Dayton coffee shop for breakfast to get some biscuits. And I love the Dayton coffee shop because a couple of years ago was the first time I went. And I was looking at the breakfast menu. And, you know, you had your two eggs, two pancakes, whatever. But at the bottom, you know, they have extras. Like if you want extra bacon or extra whatever. Every extra egg was 35 cents an egg. This was like a couple of years ago. This wasn't 1954. This was a couple of years ago. And I, I said, is this a, are you for real? Like 35 cents an egg? And they're like, yeah. And I said, I'll have six. So we went the other day and they raised the price. 60 cents an egg now. <sighs> Thanks, Obama. But I ate them anyway. I had some biscuits and gravy. It's good stuff. Anyway, cash only. <laughs> it was cash only. We had no cash. So I go up to the the, the, the waitress. There's a cashier up the front there. That's how you pay. I go up and I go, ooh, ma'am, I think we have a problem. And I held up my credit card. And she goes, oh, looks like you're going to have to do some dishes. <laughs> she goes, ah, it's just joking, hon. You can come back pay later. I said, what? She said, yeah, no problem. Come back later today, tomorrow. I said, how often does this happen? She's like, eh, pretty much every day. I said, do people actually pay? She says, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never had someone not come back and pay. Country versus city, she's different. Mike Slater Show, Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later. We only have two more segments left. Uh, let's chat about this because I said we would. Uh, very interesting phenomenon going on in our country now. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if this keeps going. I don't know what this looks like ultimately. Uh, I don't know if it peters out. I don't. I don't know what happens. Uh, but it's worth knowing it's happening before November. All the arguments from the left. Excuse me. All the argument from the left was. Uh, companies, corporations don't belong in politics. Corporations aren't people. 
my favorite example of this, my least favorite, is the CEO of Mozilla, the web browser, getting fired because they found out that six years prior, he donated a thousand bucks to Prop 8 to support traditional marriage in California. And people found out about that and got him fired. And the whole thing was business don't, doesn't belong in politics, even though he did that as a private citizen. Okay, so that was before November. But now the line is, how dare you, company, not get involved in politics? And it just happened just like that. So BuzzFeed has decided to go on these corporate witch hunts. And they're literally calling out every tech company to see if they have a statement about Trump's executive order. About immigration and refugees and visas, which, like, has zero effect on them, really. Maybe the visa part of the executive order... But I don't think there's many tech companies hiring people with visas from the Sudan. So I don't, I don't even see that connection. But isn't that amazing? This is the New York Times. This is August of last year. How think tanks amplify corporate America's influence in politics. And then, of course, Bernie Sanders' whole crusade was to make sure that companies have less influence in D.C. And then here we have Sophie Thalay, I don't know, some fashion company, tweeted out to their followers this long open lender letter about how their voice is an expression of artistic and philosophical ideas and something like just like super blowhardy letter that who asked for like so we're at the point now where if corporations don't get involved in politics then they get attacked what the heck i don't know when this started who who cares what Uber thinks? <laughs> like what? Did, I think that'd be so odd if I just went to like a bakery. I was like, "What do you think of Trump's Supreme Court pick?" They're like, "What? We make pie here." So so, big picture, what is this? So in the social media world, there is a desire uh, that everyone has who's in it to try and out outrage everyone else. That's part of the victimhood, the currency of victimhood. You need to be out. You need to be so outraged. You're more outraged than anyone. That's just that proves how outraged you. So, so if you're not a direct victim, then you can still get victim points for being more outraged than anyone else. So you can't just have a sensible disagreement. You can't be concerned about something. You have to be apoplectic about it. You have to be so distraught that you can't even. And then you get bonus points um, for really caring about this issue. So the goal is to out outrage everyone. So with this executive order, the, the visa refugee one, the taxi companies went on strike. Right? So they weren't giving people rides to JFK for some reason. And I first heard that. I guess this would have been Sunday, last Sunday. And I first heard that and I thought, well... And all right, like I don't even know why there are taxis anymore. People just take an Uber, so whatever. And Uber kept being Uber. And then they got attacked for being scabs to the taxi strike. Right? They, they got attacked for having the gall to still drive people to and from the airport, which is what their business is. So then Uber had to come out and make a statement about how they're against the executive order. But then Lyft is like, oh, totally out outraged uber like we're way more outraged than uber and said they're donating a million dollars to the aclu over the next four years and uh, like what and then airbnb got involved somehow like 
Airbnb was like, we're the most outraged. And then, like, like I said, BuzzFeed's a tracking down. They're making a list. What does IBM say about it? Have they spoken out yet? It's like, what are you doing? So what should companies do? Probably nothing. But if they really want to do good for their business, they should not be cowards and stand up for what's right all the time. And my advice to business owners, small business owners, who are always, this is like, you know, I want to speak out about this tax rate or this regulation or whatever, but I don't want to, you know, have the government come after me. Never forget Chick-fil-A. This is always my advice. Never forget Chick-fil-A. First of all, delicious. And they're opening up one. I'm not joking. Uh, 200 yards from my house. Like huge problem. Huge, huge problem. How can I not get a cookies and cream milkshake three times a day or four times a day every time I drive by? What, like, what am I supposed to do? That's just, it's just taunting me. It's free. It's like I can smell it. Hmm. Anyway, uh, I remember a couple of years back, they said, we support traditional marriage. I'm like, oh, you're so bigoted. And cities are like, we won't even let you in our city anymore. Chicago is like, Chick-fil-A doesn't represent Chicago values, whatever those are. The next week, lines around the block. Business booming, priceless marketing. And with this executive order, most Americans support it. So I don't even know who Uber's catering to with this. So why is this happening? It's all because these companies are in San Francisco. That's why it's all tech companies. Right? All the tech companies have to speak out because they're in the bubble that is San Francisco. And the people there are hystericals. The, 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 San Francisco's full of hystericals right now because of Trump. So they need to do something. So they're going to boycott Airbnb until you are appropriately outraged like I am. Right? Their employees revolt until their bosses turn into entire you know, just giant mouthpieces for every progressive issue. So you got tech companies in San Francisco and then all the media people are in D.C., so you got these two groups trying to outflank each other on the left. Meanwhile, everyone else in the rest of the country doesn't care what they think and supports what Trump is doing. So whatever. And notice that BuzzFeed and all these other, like the witch hunt, is not asking John Deere what they think about Trump's executive order. You know, they list like, well, what does Airbnb and IBM think about it? Did you ask Walmart? No, they didn't ask Walmart. They didn't ask John Deere. They didn't ask Chick-fil-A because those are country companies versus the city companies. Very, very weird. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how this keeps going. I don't know what's next there. I don't know if could Uber. There's no way this would work. But would Uber ever say we're not going to serve people who voted for Trump or something like that? There's no way they could do that. But I don't know much longer they can get away with this just super self-righteous, blowhardy, uh, oh, we're so disappointed with our, our company's about uh, unity and blah, blah, blah. 1-888-933-93. 1-888-933-93. When I come back with um, a conversation I had the other day with a Muslim refugee from Iraq who worked with the Navy SEALs while in Iraq for a long time, asked him what he thinks about this executive order. We'll tell you what he said next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to 
Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on Slater Crusader. So uh, this was as of, and I'm sorry, I haven't looked this number up again. But I, I, the last I saw it was on Tuesday. So the executive order about visas and refugees was on Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. So from like three days, eight hundred and seventy two refugees were granted waivers from those seven countries. And we said a million times, everything is on a case-by-case basis. And for anyone who got detained in the airport, they were released, every single one of them. It's amazing. So I was talking to, uh, this guy's name is Johnny Walker. He's got a book out. He was Iraqi man. He he was an Iraqi man, I guess, from Iraq. Uh, And he worked with the U.S. military as a translator. He worked his way up and and earned uh, the opportunity to work alongside the Navy SEALs for about five years. And in exchange, he was granted refugee status, came to America. He lives here in San Diego. And I talked to him about this. And he, I talked to him a year and a half ago when Trump first threw this idea out there. And I talked to him just the other day. And he thinks it makes perfect sense. He says it's totally reasonable. He said, you have no idea who these people are. You can't tell if they want to do harm to America. And I said, but, and this was a year and a half ago. I said, but you're a Muslim refugee. And he said, yeah, but you know me. The SEALs know me. They know my family. I've saved their lives. I've risked my life. They know I love this country. You know me. So the other day, we talked about the inconvenience of this for people. And he's like, listen, in his words, he goes, I go to the airport. I have a thick accent and an ugly face. I get pulled aside when I'm at the airport because I have a funny name too. His real name is not Johnny Walker. It's his code name. He said, I got pulled aside. I get asked a bunch of questions takes a long time, but then they let me go. And that's just the way it goes. He said, it's worth it. It's worth being here. Two weeks ago, I talked to a World War II veteran, Mr. Briggs, 93 years old. I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I had to drag every detail out of him. And it wasn't because he was like, it was like difficult to relive his war experience. It wasn't that it was because he's so humble and matter of fact about it. It's just no big deal. So the real quick, he was a, a pilot. He, his plane got shot down by the Nazi Nazis. He had to parachute out over the Alps. He landed hard, uh, broke his shoulder. So he's alone in the Alps, freezing cold, no food, all the rest, broken shoulder. And he had to hike down to somewhere. He's in enemy territory. And he came across. It's so funny. Like, he he talks about this. Like, I tell the story of how last weekend I went to Target to buy some milk. And they were out. So I had to go to the grocery store down the street. Like, like I, like I tell my harrowing journey about how I bought milk with just as much enthusiasm, uh, drama as this man tells about getting shot by the Nazis out of the Alps and landing, breaking his shoulder in the middle of enemy territory. Right? Like, what, what? 
So here, here's the craziest part of the story, though. He's, again, in enemy territory. Totally hopeless. I mean, where's he going to go? And he comes across a house with a cross on the front of it. Now, he, his dad was a, a minister, and he's a Christian, and he comes across a house with a Christian family in it. Now, you would think, perfect. I'm going to knock on their door and see. I mean, it's worth better than this. But he didn't. He didn't knock on their door. Why not? My first thought was maybe because uh, maybe, maybe they could still be bad. They could still be Nazis. They could still hate him and kill him. No, he didn't knock on their door because he thought it would put them in danger. If the Nazis found out that they helped an American, then they would be in trouble. So he kept walking. And then he came across another Christian's home and he didn't go in again. And then he was captured and put in a prisoner of war camp for six months, lost 40 pounds, almost died until the war was over. What? How could he have so much consideration for other people in the middle of so much pain and misery and hopelessness for himself? I will never forget that. Never for as long as I live. So I don't know. I, I, I think about this with Trump's delay. It's a delay on refugees and people with visas. Yes, it's, it's hard for certain people. But as Johnny Walker said, it's worth it. And if you're a guest in this country, wouldn't you, you maybe not want, but at least respect a country's desire to make sure that everyone who does come here wants to be here as much as you do. That seems sensible, sensible, doesn't it? Now, I want to give a, uh, a quick little shout-out here to Mika Brzezinski. Mika Brzezinski in Morning Joe, she said the other day, she just kind of threw it out there, and I don't know to the extent of this. I don't exactly know, even know what it looks like, but she said she's working on adopting a Syrian family. So I imagine this is a bit of a sponsorship program. Right, where you adopt a family and you, that, that means you financially support them and sort of help them get comfortable here in America. I think that's great. I think that's awesome. Because that's actually helping refugees. And this isn't your, your super self-righteous narcissism of Twitter activism, which is the laziest form of activism in all of human history. Like, like if you say, oh, I care so much about this cause, I'm going to send a tweet about it. That, there's nothing more pathetic. Or, or I guess even less is uh, I'm going to change my Twitter avatar to a rainbow and then sit back and congratulate yourself about how wonderful and caring and tolerant you are. That's Twitter activism today. And I love that. If you, For Mika, if you want to help refugees, don't just criticize other people for not helping them because the truth is you're not either. So let's say average conservative person who doesn't want refugees in America, they're not helping refugees, but you're not helping them either. Just by saying you want more here, like that's not helping. Go help them financially, perhaps. Like Mika, adopt a family. And by the way, that used to be the norm, right? You would sponsor families. That's how that worked. Nicholas Winton's the best example of this that, I, that I've ever seen. World War II, he was in England. He went to Germany uh, to help get Jewish children out of the country before... Uh, Hitler really started killing everyone. And he asked the British government if they could take the kids, and they said only if you can find a sponsor for the children. So he put together these books with the kids' pictures, and um, family sponsored these kids. And then he got the travel documents, put them on a train to their sponsored families. Anyway, that's active involvement from people who want to help, not just a Twitter hashtag. Please search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Follow us all week, and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.